Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and little winds here and there will not hold me together. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and Anna, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of the cult of the offensive and fallibilism. Today, we'll be talking about the first episode of the last season of The Expanse. In the next few weeks, we will also be talking about The Expanse. There is nothing but Expanse coming from this podcast. <laughs> it's an expanse of Expanse, Dan. There's there's nothing <laughs> there's nothing on the horizon but The Expanse. Almost Expanse squared, as you were. So we are aware, Anna and I, that there is going to be a backlog of stuff that we are going to need to talk about because there's some sci-fi coming out in... December that is going to be interesting, like the Matrix sequel and so forth. And we have lots of ideas that are in the queue, but we are also taking suggestions. You can reach us via Twitter. I am at Dan Dresner. She is at Anna Marie Cox. And we also have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash space the nation. Anna, what else can people do on our Patreon page besides going to it? Well, obviously, they can leave comments. They can make suggestions. They can listen to back episodes. And Dan, this is important. Mm hmm. They can become a patron. Whoa. Yeah. I mean, we really do need to sample that Keanu woe. <laughs> we really do, yes. <laughs> so why would one become a patron? Well, you get swag. That's great. You get early access to podcasts. You also get access to our Discord, which is a fun place to be. It's taken on a life of its own, mm -hmm. independent of me and Dan. Mm -hmm. They discuss things that are not science fiction related in any way, including food and music and pets. So highly encourage you to check that out if you're already a patron. And if you're not a patron, you should join and check it out. Also, a great way to support the show that costs you absolutely nothing. Please rate and review the show. Tell your friends and neighbors. So, Anna, why are we talking about The Expanse? I can't even say that with a straight face. <laughs> why are we talking about The Expanse? <laughs> why, are we, why do anything, Dan? Really? <laughs> In this short time we have on Earth, why do anything? We're talking about The Expanse, Dan, because that is how this podcast started way back in the day. People mm -hmm. may not remember 2019. Do you remember 2019? I, I vaguely recall I traveled a little more than I used to. Yeah. yeah. The, you saw more people's faces. Yeah. yeah. It, was, it was cool. Yeah, it was nice. Dan and I started doing Expanse recaps for sci-fi uh, for a podcast that they called The Churn. Mm -hmm. And that is how Dan and I discovered we really love doing this together <laughs> and we love it so much that when sci-fi canceled all of its podcasts we decided we we're just going to keep on going yes and this is our second time around doing expanse recaps without the support of the sci-fi network and i actually think we've gotten pretty good at it dan i really do i i think we've really gotten into our groove and you know this is as the way i look at it as we start this sixth season of the expanse it you know could be time for our own gritty reboot you know maybe we should have like a dark <laughs> a more grim dark you know opening theme you know that's that's one yeah. way to think about it change up some of the graphics yeah you know. exactly you know we, uh, it, it's, I, I like it as, I like as it. we approach we'll the see. new year this is something to consider also a reminder to our listeners um which we often offered when we were talking about the expanse season five anna has read the books and i have not because she is the better read fiction person and i am the better read nonfiction person but more importantly this means that we are obviously coming to this uh from you know, slightly different perspectives. And I believe, Anna, you will be sure to give warnings when we talk about book spoilers yes. as opposed to show spoilers. Yes. Uh, obviously, there are going to be show spoilers galore. So do not listen to this uh, episode until you have actually watched season six, episode one of The Expanse, also called Strange Dogs. 
But Anna, let's get to the story behind the story. We're not really going to do this for most of the rest of the episodes, but since it's the start of season six, it does seem somewhat appropriate to do it now. Okay, Dan, I'll just say a little bit about some of the, the, just a couple of the interesting tidbits of the backstory behind this season. It is intended, I believe, to cover the events of the sixth novel, Babylon's Ashes. I can tell you right now that they're already pulling from the other books. And so I'm in some ways not worried about giving spoilers because I don't know what the fuck they're going to pull. You know, <laughs> like they, they've they already mishmashed characters. They've, you know, kind of shortened timelines. Also to pull from Persepolis Rising, which is the seventh book, is interesting because in the books it takes place 30 years into the future beyond where we are now. Oh, there's so a flash forward. That's interesting. Okay. There's a flash forward. I will say... The last two books that I read, and I haven't read nine yet because I, I think it comes out like tomorrow. Right. Seven and eight are awesome. They're really, really good. And they have a lot to do with Laconia. Mm-hmm. Laconia doesn't play a part in six at all. So, And to be clear for those listeners, Laconia is a, clearly going to be playing a part in season six. Yeah. Of yeah, the show. We, the, one of the opening scenes yes. is, is set in Laconia. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, we'll quickly address why Alex uh, Kamal is dead. Yes. Alex is played by Cass Anvar, and some women made allegations of sexual misconduct towards him. And the show took very quick action and separated themselves from him. Uh, He put out a statement saying that he welcomed an investigation and these women should be heard, which is good because a lot of women needed to be heard. I don't know if he's given any statements since 30 women came forward, but it seems like the show you know, made the right choice. Mm -hmm. I think actually, I'll editorialize a little. I think that they did the right thing and taking, you know, sort of a stance that was like, we would rather err on the side of believing than not believing. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm also glad they did the investigation that needed to be done as well. Fair enough. You're not going to editorialize. No, I, well, (laughs) I, I, how would I put this? Anytime 30 women come forward, that's probably a tell that something is, you know, amiss. Something's wrong. Yeah, something's amiss. Yeah. So, yeah, that I'm obviously uh, glad. And I'm actually, they seem to settle it relatively quickly, which was the other thing that I recall from this process last year. Yeah. yeah. So a couple more things uh, less serious. Mm-hmm. Book six has a natural ending to it, which, which makes uh-huh. sense that they would pull from book six and make this the last season as i said what happens is a 30-year jump forward to book seven but everyone knows that the expanse was saved once from being canceled and there is so much more material to pull from not just the books but the novellas and also various like storylines that have been discarded from the past books that they could bring back so they have a ton of material to make not just another season but like many more seasons not that i necessarily want them to But let's just say that's not a factor. So Dominique Tipper hinted that it was just the end of their time at Amazon. So yes, it might be saved. Also, co-creator Ty Frank told, I believe, EW, I think one of the things that is sort of an outmoded idea is the idea of being canceled. Dan, I'm fairly certain he's not talking about the kind of canceling that gets, like, Sean Hannity mad. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's just talking about, like, being canceled on television. Well, I think that's a safe statement, and it would not surprise yeah. me. For I, This is interesting for a variety of reasons. First of all, if he's right. You know, there are shows that have 
been resurrected in a variety of forms. The, the one that comes to mind for me is Veronica Mars, which, you know, had three seasons on network television, then I think was one of the first to use Kickstarter as a way of, of financing a feature film. And then I think actually on Amazon or Hulu, I can't remember which one, if there, there was then a short series, you know, where we're now 15 years past when the show originally came out. And it was clear when that little short series ended that they're planning on bringing it back again at some point in the future. So that is fair. The other thing I think we're going to have to talk about in a macro sense throughout these six episodes that we're going to discuss is there is no way to get around the comparisons between the end of this show and the end of Game of Thrones. And in na- terms of how lame Game of Thrones was? Yeah, so or- let's stipulate, <laughs> I think we, there is consensus between us that Game of, <laughs> Game of Thrones ended horribly as a television show. In no small part, I'm sure for a variety of reasons, and we can speculate on those. One of them, though, which this, which the Expanse has already clearly avoided, is that the show got ahead of George R. R. Martin's actual books. And so it seemed like they were kind of vamping on the fly. It also seemed like the producers, Benioff and Weiss, just wanted to get the damn thing over with. And that was an additional problem. I would say that having to riff on Martin's plots rather than use his plots yeah. was, I think, more of a contributing factor. Because what makes Game of Thrones the books good, mm-hmm. I believe is that it manages to mix political intrigue with magic and with personalities and characters and whatnot. Right. And he he keeps the magic part of it vague enough that I think people who are turned off by swords and sorcery right. don't really get turned off by it. But it's a part of the books, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And in, in the TV show, they kept on like, oh, yes, there's dragons and some other stuff. But it stopped being part of the show. And so, and then they're like, oh, but we have this whole thing we have to, (laughs) we have, oh, right, we have the White Walkers, we got to deal with them, oh, shit, like. We'll just do it in one episode. We'll do it in one episode. (laughs) We'll just have, we'll just, they'll just, we'll just kill them. We'll kill them. We'll just kill them. So. So it, it is interesting in that, like, I will say one of the things The Expanse has done better, I think, frankly, than Game of Thrones is, as it were, change the big bad. You know, mm-hmm. to, to use Joss Whedon's phrase, because like the proto molecule was obviously and Jules Pierre Mao was the sort of funder of the proto molecule in the first three seasons. But since then, we've been like seeing other things emerge and obviously Marco Anaris, who is just a great goddamn villain. And and again, props to Keon Alexander, who who does a fantastic job in that role. So we will it'll be interesting to see how this closes out. I, th- I think the expanse is starting from. A stronger foundation, and I'm therefore relatively optimistic. But listeners, as you will discover, this first episode that Anna and I watched, there were some rough transitions, and we're going to get to that right now. Just a little a bumpy re-entry into the atmosphere, yes. that's what I would say. Dan. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, let's, let's get started, Dan. All right, so let's start with the belt, Anna, and, you know, let's call this plot segment, So This All Seems Horrible. When we last left the World of the Expanse, Marco Anaris had successfully lobbed stealth tech asteroids at Earth, and his free navy had cut a deal with a militant Martian faction that had allowed them to gain control of the ring and destroy a significant fraction of the inner fleets. So, it's six months later, and the situation has worsened for pretty much everyone but Marco. This is particularly true for my favorite belter, Kamina Drummer, who is trying to evade the free navy and the bounty hunters intent on collecting the price Marco has put on her head. She's trying to arm and support 
resupply her own ship. They're basically still sort of acting like pirates. But darn that Butterfingers Michio, she keeps pressing the wrong button. Uh, Kamina and crew are able to escape the bounty hunter, but Joseph tells her they have to offload Michio in order to be able to survive. Drummer resists, but then eventually relents. Also, I do think she and Joseph are hooking up, and Joseph, you better treat her right is all I'm saying. Dan. Yes, Anna. This crew is polyamorous. I just want to remind you. That is something I thought you would remember, given your interest <laughs> in drummer. In drummer. I am interested in drummer, Anna. But I am assuming, <laughs> I, how dare you stereotype, you know, the belters uh, and their polyamory. I assume that polyamory is a thing, but that doesn't mean that it's a requirement that they hook up. You know, <laughs> and so I didn't want to make that assumption. Well, I don't think it's possible just to be the one person not. Like, <laughs> Are you saying you can't opt for abstinence if you're a belter? That's an interesting question. Oh, I mean, you know, okay, so honestly, the people that I know who are poly okay. are up for anything, probably <laughs> including abstinence. Like, I'm actually serious. <laughs> like, <laughs> if that was your choice, they would be like, cool, man. Yeah, dig it go for you know? it totally like you're an absent poly person all right awesome absent poly person. <laughs> okay fair sure. enough so the, the point is i just didn't want to make an assumption that they all were right, automatically right. okay. up. that's good that's so, good yeah. you see that's i was trying to display, display an open mind there but on a, there is also and we're, we referenced this before a pre-credit sequence featuring a small girl and what I assume are these strange dogs that make the title, they're clearly alien creatures, which I believe is a first besides the proto-molecule that we have seen in The Expanse. They are located on ring number 673, planet 2, Laconia. This seems significant, Anna, and yet we don't revisit this place after minute three of the episode. And I was disappointed. This is strange, as I said, because Laconia doesn't turn up in book six. Mm -hmm. Book seven and eight, and I presume book nine, are all about Laconia. Hmm. I wouldn't say all about, but Laconia plays a... I have to be so careful here. Uh, I actually just finished rereading seven, and I've started eight. And part of me was thinking that they would be covered in this this season. Mm -hmm. And I was so excited, Dan, Mm. because I... like. Again, I'd be careful. There's some really cool IR, and I was like, "And there's I a dog. What I know there's a dog." Of this, and well, I hope there's a dog. There is a dog in the books. Okay. I'm now kind of pessimistic about whether or not the dog will show up hmm. in season. It should six. be noted. We'll see. I mean, it, it should be noted. Laconia was. I, correct me if I'm wrong. In the last episode of season five. Yeah. They say Laconia. We know Lac- and I think Yeah, they, they say Laconia. There that right. is where the Martians went. Right. I don't think that's a I don't think I'm spoiling any. No, no, no. Although they um, don't the, some of them don't make it if, if memory serves. Oh yeah, yeah, some of them don't make it. Right. One of one of the ships goes Dutchman. Yes. <laughs> which is more important to remember than you may think given the amount of time they spent on that. Oh, okay. And that's not a spoiler, yeah. I hope. No, I don't think so. I will say that even up to this point in the episode which is like 5 or 6 minutes in, I was already kind of like you know like this isn't the most comfortable re-entry and we will talk more about this later because i actually think it's a structural problem in the era of binge watching Mm -hmm. because it's hard to to come back to us the expectations of viewers when you come back to a season Mm -hmm. or after a long pause right 
When you mean um, when you come back to a series after a long pause? Yeah, when you come back to a series after a long pause, we have different expectations than we used to, hmm. you know, because we're used to maybe just like being able to zip through something and there's not really a difference between seasons. So this seems especially rough. But yeah. the specific thing in this segment was the Michio thing. Yeah. Dan, did you maybe suspect she would press the wrong button when the camera showed her cl- a close-up of her trembling in front of the screen? I don't know. Shockingly, <laughs> I did see that as a possibility. I kept thinking, this is a great commercial for decaffeinated coffee, Anna. Like, you know, that was that was what I kept noticing. I mean, I get that Drummer has a soft spot for her. Mm-hmm. I do. But, like... Drummer's also pretty fucking ruthless. Yeah. And she wouldn't let the shaky hands girl pull the trigger, you know? Like, she has... There are other jobs. There were plenty of people just standing around on that deck. Right. Joseph <laughs> could have actually done it. I mean, you know, that seems like a like, pretty simple job. Like, yeah. Literally, there were people doing nothing, mm-hmm. and they chose shaky hands girl. So... <laughs> I should also stress, and, by and the also, way. And also, I don't oh. think she was established as being, ner- what I really wanted to say is I don't think she was established as being a basket case, you know, in in, in the previous season. No, I don't believe so. Although I, I do remember that when we talked about the sort of drummer plot line, I think we agreed that the, the polyamorous crew and the sort of crew of the, the Botang, I think, and the DeWalt and so forth, that was sort of an under thought out. Explored? Yeah, that's a better way. Yes, yes. And so it's not surprising to me that this sort of played out the way it did. I would also stress to our listeners, by the way, we are actually not telling, in recounting this plot, I'm not recounting the plot as you watch it. We're just doing, you know, different locations because they cut, obviously, they intersperse back and forth. Yes. Just to be clear. So like, technically, this weren't the first five minutes. I think it was like the, like this happened at the 20 minute mark of the, the plot or whatever. But, you know. Okay, Dan. I'm just being technical. I'm sorry. I meant your hands are shaking at the very beginning. That is very true. Yes, yes, absolutely true. And I just think Drummer would have taken care of that bullshit. Yeah, it it seems undrummer-like to be charitable at that particular moment. Like, she is a kind person, and there are times where the kindness is appropriate. If your life is on the goddamn line, then and there are other people around, yeah, I'm thinking you might want to have other people on that that trigger. Yeah, she's not going to pull up someone from the practice squad. Yeah. You know? Exactly. All right, Dan, moving on. All right, let's go to Earth. The asteroid attacks will continue until morale improves. In the past six months, Earth has had to deal with near-constant asteroid attacks from Marco. They have successfully stopped uh, more than 200 of them, but at least a dozen have gotten through, at least from the map that I saw. And it's kept the Earth fleet pinned down in protection. It looks like the biosphere can't take it anymore. In Avasarala's words, it's like a goddamn nuclear winter. Avasarala has Bobby staffing her, and Bobby is hating that job because it does not involve being a Marine and kicking people's asses. Our favorite reporter, Monica, tries to ask Avasarala whether she has thought about suing for peace with Marco since Earth has lost contact with the colonies ever since the ring attack. Avasarala is trying to maintain some equilibrium with weightlessness, but she might have a plan after getting some information from the Rossi crew. Anna, I'm glad to see Anna Hopkins in this episode. Uh, She is our favorite reporter in sci-fi. She plays Monica. Did you approve of her reporting questions? And also, once again, Mars seems to get short shrift. It seems like Mars and Earth are now allied, but there's barely any mention of it. And literally, I still don't know, like, what Mars' role, like, what the government there is doing, given that it was a breakaway Martian faction that allied with Marco. Like, it seems very underdeveloped. Taking your questions in opposite order, Dan. Okay, yes. Those were more comments than questions, Anna, but go ahead. Yeah, those were more comments than questions. I do think that the 
invisibility of Mars, Mars erasure, let's call it, (laughs) Martian erasure, is something that happens in the books as well, which is kind of too bad. Mm. I mean, because they explore it somewhat, and we've seen it in the series even, which is what happens to a culture when its entire mission shifts. Right. And I actually thought season five did a pretty good job of that. Yeah, um, yeah, you know, particularly when Alex goes back to visit Mars and so forth. But I'm yeah. saying, like, in the book with with six, seven, eight. Yeah, fair like enough. In 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 the books post asteroid attack, yeah. there is less attention given to Mars, hmm. even though yes, there is something called the Earth Mars Coalition. Oh, uh, okay. And I think that's you know, I mean, but they have abundance of things to mine in the expanse, so I can't really fault them with not exploring this particular tangent, mm-hmm. although. I don't think this is a spoiler. That's going to be my new catchphrase. I don't think, <laughs> I don't this, think is this is a spoiler. spoiler. Yes. Having a little more thought about what Martian culture is and was could throw the action in Laconia into better relief. Hmm. Let's just say that. Okay. Um, as for Anna Hopkins, we stand Anna <laughs> Hopkins. And the questions seem nice and pointed, mm-hmm. but... I am still curious about the journalistic norms in this universe. (laughs) (laughs) They do this in the books as well, which is that they they just sort of say that something is a press conference. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, how? (laughs) Like, like press conferences are kind of a pain in the ass to organize now, Right. right? Yeah. And there's a lot of jockeying for, like, who gets what kind of access and who gets to ask questions. And it just sort of seems wild to me that there's just like a scrum of reporters waiting for Vasarala, who is the leader of the known universe at this point. Like, yeah, <laughs> just like waiting for her outside of her, you know, cabin, I guess. Yeah, she's just like uh, walking yeah. down the hall and suddenly Monica pops out. Like, yeah, where, it's like where, a walk and talk. Where is the Earth like, Secret <laughs> Service, I guess, is the question. That That's a valid question. You would expect to see. Yeah, and also yeah. Who, who decides, like, who gets access? I mean, maybe it's great. Maybe it's just like a journalist paradise mm-hmm. and like, like the Congress used to be before, you know, security measures right. and whatnot, where reporters and, and, and Congress people really did just roam the halls together. Maybe that's what's happening. But I would love a novella that is just about the media of the Expanse <laughs> universe, because they refer to they refer to it all the time, the feeds, like propaganda and mm-hmm. whatnot. But like, who pays, you know, for this shit? Mm-hmm. And also, is the problem that Anna Hopkins literally fought side by side with the Rossi crew? I don't know. I didn't think the New York Times would frown on that in a similar situation. But maybe, I don't know, maybe she's more of an independent blogger. So it's possible. Maybe there's Substack in you know in this world. <laughs> she has a Substack. I love that. I, oh my god. I think Monica. I, I could that. see Monica having a totally having a Substack. That's you know that's how. I you're totally right. There we go. You're totally right. Okay. That is what that is what's going on. Yes. And also Anna Hopkins, if you want to do a Substack, you know I think you should consider it. All right. Let us move to series in which Philip discovers toxic masculinity. So Marco is truly on a roll. He has killed Anderson Dawes, destroyed most of the dissident Belter factions, and gained control over all the stations in the belt. With the inner fleet staying near their plants to protect against asteroids, uh, Marco has free reign and, let's be honest, is a little bit bored by that. He announces that Ceres will be the Belter capital. Of course, there is that pesky problem of, you know, feeding everyone in the belt now that there is nothing coming from Earth. 
These questions bore the living fuck out of Marco, and so he's cool with prioritizing Medina Station in the ring, getting whatever scarce resources they have, and letting Ceres tighten its belt while everyone is rallying around the free Navy flag. If Marco is doing well, Philip is doing not so well. On the surface, he's having a lot of sex and booze and seems pretty popular with his Gen Z cohort, but he's slacking in his duties. Marco is continuing to belittle him, as is his second-in-command, and I swear to God, I am not making up this name, but the name, according to you know IMDb, is Rosenfeld Goylang, and I'm probably massacring that last name. Yeah, of the series Goylang. Yes, okay. <laughs> There we go. Philip resents the fuck out of that. He also seems to be feeling some remorse about his culpability in, uh, you know, Marco's genocidal attack against Earth. This all comes to a head when he gets into a drunken fight with one of his friends, and after getting punched, pulls out his gun and kills him. Anna, ordinarily, Keon Alexander is the most charismatic actor when he is on the screen. But he seemed somewhat muted this time around, maybe because he's sort of one and doesn't really know what to do. Also, I'm not going to lie, that man bun is horrible. But Josiah Chase Owens uh, as Philip, I did think sort of has the wounded thing going reasonably well. But also, equally important, Anna, are you okay with losing your boyfriend? Because I am not. I did not like the way they just sort of quickly got rid of Anderson Dawes, <laughs> who is played by Jared Harris. I get why yeah, this had to happen. my boyfriend, Jared Harris, yes, your boy- who I assume was busy spouting nonsense on the set of Foundation. <laughs> that is, I have to believe that that's what happened. Otherwise, I, it's unlike them to like take a character and just casually mention, oh yeah, he died. Yeah. I killed him. <laughs> I, was, I, I, I have to admit, I sort of was expecting something like this because I was figuring there was no way that Jared Harris could like, you know, unless they right. literally had used the foundation tech and it created a quantum holograph of right, him right, to right. be able to play. He wasn't going to be able to do both shows. And I get that. But having seen Foundation till the end of the season, and we still need to talk about that at some point uh, on this podcast. <laughs> I think his time could have been better. Exactly. It was not an efficient allocation of Jared Harris resources is all I'm saying. Yeah. Yes. I also think this is an example of that rough reentry problem mm-hmm. with the first episode of a new season because um, you have to do exposition dumps. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I don't think Marco's a good vehicle for those, <laughs> by the way. That's fair. <laughs> like, yes. Uh, the way he delivers lines and whatnot, like, he needs to be doing something else besides, and I killed him, as you know, I killed him. <laughs> that's true. That's not a Mark. I mean, it actually is a Marco yeah. line, but it's not a, like, it's, it's, it's. It's literally a Marco line, but that doesn't, is not like a thing he would say. Yes, exactly. Like, yes. Anyway. And also, I wasn't a huge fan of Philip, and I think it wasn't just the extreme toxic masculinity. And let's be clear, it's really extreme. It's very extreme. The opening scene, and I, I, I was turned off by the very uh, uh, opening scene of his plotline, which had him, you know, fucking a girl, and it in a pretty like for TV, like, you know, there's not nudity, no. but it's aggressive. It's let's a, just say yes. It, it, leave this way, and I they mean, spend some time on it. Yeah. they spend a little more time on it than I would think is necessary to show that Philip is out there doing his fucking girls thing. yes i mean i you know well I, let me put it this way the way i would you could have started that fucking scene with them getting dressed and you would have gotten the same message across i'm not so sure about that actually i'm gonna so i'm gonna disagree with you a little bit it's not that like i wanted to see that but the it's interesting to me the way that is shot it, you are clearly supposed to get the idea that philip has really like a you know uh, uh, how would i put this that philip is 
He's sunk is, yes, to, to, he, to a low level right. in his behavior. He's acting out. That is not I agree. that is not sex that is supposed to be titillating. And I would argue it's not present it's not acted in that way. It is clearly just, you know, you're designed to make it's designed to make you feel uncomfortable. It's clearly a, you know, it's clearly a power thing. Right. And it's, it's something about his ego and yeah. not about, you know, scoring it, or it's only about scoring points yeah. and, and not about sex. I also feel like I would have gotten a little more frisian out of him killing his friend if we'd spent more time together like <laughs> yeah actually i have i let me put it this way after watching this episode i went back to 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 check and i was like did we see this guy before and i don't think we did i, I mean i think this was a new yeah. yeah so you know like it just seemed a little abrupt so yeah you know in general i thought he he, he behaved in sort of this like play acty posy way but also, you know what, Dan? That's what teens do. I was going to say, to be so. fair, like this is teenagers as as someone who has had to raise two of them, or at least help raise two of them. You know, that is peak asshole phase in terms of humanity. Very yeah. often, and and we do. Well, I actually don't mean asshole. I mean like they pose. They wild swings right? and behave. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. No, no, oh, no you're sorry, still not getting me. They, they, it's it's the behavior's a little artificial. Oh, no, that's true. That's true. You know, when you're a teen, yeah. you're trying on personalities. Yeah, and personas. That's true. You know, yeah. and sometimes it can show that you haven't totally settled on one yet. And to be fair, that's entirely what I assume we we're supposed to expect yeah. of Philip, because it did seem yeah. like Philip had made the choice to stick with his father at the end, you know, after season five. And again, the most shocking moment in season five was when he hit Naomi, I think. Whereas here, he seems to have some, clearly some inner turmoil. And again, I don't like any plot line where I'm thinking, you know what? Marco might have a point here. And Marco has a point yeah. in terms of not taking Philip <laughs> seriously. A bad sign. It's a yeah. bad sign when you agree with Marco. That's what I'm trying to say in terms and, of the expanse. And, and speaking of Marco, yes. of course, again, we stand Keon Alexander. Mm-hmm. And he is fantastic in everything. And he makes everything better. Mm-hmm. This was not his finest episode. Mm-hmm. He's not a good vehicle for exposition, as I said. And also, Dan... Did did I see correctly that he gives a, a huge speech to about a dozen people <laughs> in series? Pretty much, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, there's this very odd scene where he kind of stops in the middle of a hallway. And also, by the way, I, I didn't try to watch this again to see if I'm right. But it feels like so he and Philip leave going in the same direction out of the coffee shop or bar where they are. Mm-hmm. And then when... It, what happens is Philip and his friend are coming towards, like Marco, on like the in the in the round of the station. I, it's just like it's a weird directional thing. Like I was just like, wait, huh. what happened? Like what? How did how did everyone get to where they are? Yeah. And I know that is being very picky. Mm-hmm. It's a bad sign when you have a chance to be that picky on a show. Yeah. And I think minor spoiler for our next discussion or our next uh, segment, which is I think they should have used the money they clearly spent on Amos's spacewalk mm-hmm. to, like, create a bigger crowd for Mark. This is where I, I, and I'll, I'll come back to this again. But, like, it, there's almost a meta point about the show now, which is they were shooting this, if memory serves, in January of, of 2021. Uh, true. And this is pre-vaccine, really, in terms of where they were shooting it was also peak infection numbers. And I kind of wonder if that was one of the things that was going on when they shot that that episode. Which is one reason they could have used, you know, CGI yeah. to do it. Also, in a little bit of defense of their choice to have him give this big speech to a very small group of people, there is something actually kind of very Marco about that. <laughs> like... <laughs> 
<laughs> Do you get the sense that Marco just does that like every 30 yards, you know? Like, he, he, oh, there's more than three people here. I am going I to, better give a speech. It's time for me to speechify, yes. <laughs> That's fair. I mean, he's... And maybe he gives that, that same speech like every like half hour or so. I mean, he speechifies, <laughs> like, I, I remember when, the, when we first were introduced to him, he speechifies just to Kamina, a uh, drummer at one point. You know, like, that. this is what yeah. he, this is what Keon Alexander is very good at, and it, it's entirely consistent with Marco's character. I would have appreciated it if they'd played it a little for laughs, because, mm-hmm. Dan, not a lot of laughs in this episode. No, this was a grim, dark episode. There is no denying that, yes. Yes, which leads us to the last act. Uh, let us go and visit the Rossi. Tough little ship, pissed off little crew. The Rossi is on day 187 of recon out in the belt, and I think it's safe to say that the experience, not to mention Alex's death, is wearing everyone down. Naomi is pissed that Clarissa Mao, a.k.a. Peaches, is on board the ship, even though she seems to be doing a pretty decent job. Amos is pissed that Naomi is pissed. They manage to destroy some free Navy ships and then have to do some repair, which leads to the spacewalk that Anna referenced uh, from Amos, but realize that Marco's forces have been plundering colony ships and mounting their drive engines onto asteroids to launch at Earth. Jim investigates and accidentally triggers the launch sequence. He's about to be fried, but in a fit of rage, bangs at the controls and manages to knock out the drive before it fires. Naomi figures out that a spotter ship named the Azure Dragon is remote launching the asteroids to exploit gaps in Earth defenses. Spoiler ships are pretty rare, so the Rossi crew believes that if they manage to knock this one out, they can alleviate at least the most immediate threat to Earth. Anna, so many things about this Rossi segment. First, it seems like they are properly grieving Alex now in a way that they didn't really at the end of season five. I think because Alex's death was sort of rushed in the last episode of season five. Second, are we supposed to laugh when Holden loses it in the control panel? Because that really was, for me, the lightest moment in this entire episode, which is not a good thing. But I was laughing when Holden was just, like, pissed off and banging the thing with with the wrench. What say you on this? So I think you're a little more generous to this episode than I am <laughs> in that you did laugh when Holden was was doing his 2001, you know, monkey Although um, imitation. the laugh might not have been like a good laugh. I was it, it just struck me as funny given the general dreariness of this episode. But but do go on. Yeah, you know, it it seemed a little I mean, I guess plot wise, there's a reason for that being there. It felt if there's a way that showing can somehow also be telling. <laughs> All of this felt really stiff to me. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe that's the the best the best way to describe it. Mm-hmm. It it felt almost like the the whole show is kind of getting back into its groove. It's like they haven't limbered up yet, is what you're saying. I feel like that's true. Everyone looks exhausted, by the way. Like that is like almost. I was like, wow, they really they really want to communicate how tired everybody is. Yes. And <laughs> although, granted, it is. Day 187 right. of a. I mean, let me just wait. They, you, it was believable that it was day 187 of their mission. Right. Maybe I should save this. I, I you know what? I would have saved this for the debris uh, field, mm-hmm. Dan. But fuck, what Amos? Like, why not more Amos? Like, why, Dan? You know, if you're gonna kill Jared Harris off screen, <laughs> like. You gotta give me more Amos. That's like that's it's it's, it's, it's in the contract. I I don't know what so, to tell you. I you know we could try to speak to the producers, but I suspect we're gonna get more Amos as the as the season moves on. All right, Dan. Anna. 
Is there IR in this episode? Anna, as surely as Marco will pontificate while trying to obliterate Earth, there will be IR in the Expanse. Where to begin? I, I guess there are two sort of general things that are coming up watching this episode. The first is when revolutionary movements become regimes, which is to say that no matter what ideology they tend to espouse when they're rebels, once they take power, they often wind up being a lot less revolutionary over time uh, (laughs) than is commonly expected. And this is a a common theme in a lot of both fiction and nonfiction. Uh, In terms of fiction, George Orwell's Animal Farm is sort of the perfect novel that sort of captures this in terms of what the Soviets do uh, when they take over. But also in social science, if you read Theta Scotchpole's States or Social Revolutions or Stephen Walt's Revolutions in War, basically the problem... Or, Dan, if you look at history, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually, if you look at fucking like high school, you know, student council elections. <laughs> I mean. Yes. But basically, I mean, it, it's always the same... You run on no more, you you run on more recess (laughs) and you get there and you're suddenly shaking hands with teachers. You're saying, oh, like we can negotiate about recess Mm -hmm. and maybe some more cookies. Right. And then in the end, you basically change the sound of the bell when recess is made. That's right. (laughs) Dan, that's right. This sounds like an interesting memory we're going to have to talk about a little bit later on. I just the quickest of sidebars. Yes. I do have a story about this, which is that I ran for actually not in a recess context. I ran for student government when I was at University of Chicago on a slate of folks who were specifically recruited to represent more like progressive elements mm-hmm. of the campus. Yeah. Because the original, it was a special election because the original student government mm-hmm. had been shown to have. Um, uh, stuff the ballot box to get elected <laughs> which if you did I don't know about you but like the idea of stuffing a ballot box for a student government election is like <laughs> I mean you don't need to do that like and yet it happens no on one, a fairly regular basis on a you know right and the way that they were caught is they xeroxed ballots <laughs> and <laughs> what were they doing at the University of Chicago <laughs> like <laughs> They Xerox ballots and put them all in a ballot box at the law school. That was like, it was, it, there was a write-up in the New York Times. It was like such a terrible ballot oh box stuffing like scandal. I like to think that this is how you thwarted a second Nixon administration. Because if memory yeah. serves, like a lot of Nixon's like plumbers, you know, uh, got their got their origin like in USC when they were in student politics doing similar things. So, yes. Yeah. All right. So, that is. I have a longer version of that story, Dan, but. Uh, we should probably yes yes the point is is that when generally speaking when when revolutionaries take power they have to do things like rely on experts they have to you know deal with other actors in the international system or interstellar system in the case of of the expanse and we see this in in rosenfeld declaring or telling marco that they don't owe series anything thereby actually leaving series worse off than they were before if that was possible and indeed, for all of Philip's, Philip then protests about this. He has no solution to it. But Philip was actually right about that. Yeah. And then also, uh, this is an argument that, that Jack Snyder has made in a book called Myths of Empire. Basically, the power of myths to fuel expansionist behavior. Um, the belief that if you expand, the expansion will in and of itself somehow be stabilizing. And we see this again. We saw this last season. And we talked about this, I remember, in the podcast, you know, that Marco seemed to 
believe that Ganymede would somehow feed everyone. Uh, somehow, breadbasket bread of, of, of... If memory belt. serves, he, I think he literally said, there will be some belt tightening for a little while, and then everything will yeah. somehow magically work out, which is like the underpants gnomes theory of, you know, feeding the belt. So yeah. unless there's something involving Laconia that I'm missing, but I don't even want you to tell me, we okay, we'll, we'll, we'll see on that. But uh, this leads to a separate question. Uh, Anna? Dan? Did you find a way to point out the evils of capitalism in this episode? Well, Dan, the fact that this excellent series is coming to an end should tell you that the system is <laughs> You know, I found this episode unsatisfying in its critique of capitalism, as well as generally unsatisfying. What happened to the commentary on class and labor, Dan? You know, my recollection is that in the book, there's a little more attention paid to the ways that class and economics might divide the Free Navy Mm -hmm. and how the labor identity of the Free Navy is something that that Marco should have probably considered, you know, (laughs) and splitting the belter factions and whatnot. And the difficulty of transitioning from a coalition that's based on shared class interest to what is basically a cult of personality. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, one could argue that happens a lot um, in uh, communism. I was going to say, but, to be fair, uh, this is this is a <laughs> this is an accurate political plot, is all I will say on that point. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. I do also have a question about who's paying for all this, basically. Like all of this, where do you have a thought? Uh, well, Earth, like the the humanitarian crisis on Earth, mm-hmm. must be. The toll in not just death, but in like needing to feed everyone, needing to get people off the planet. Because mm-hmm. um, Earth had been like a fair, Earth had been very wealthy yeah. and also, you know, had universal basic income, mm-hmm. had taken good care of everyone. And I'm just sort of wondering, like, how, what's going on? Like, are they just relying on the Martians? I So like, this is one of those things where, I, again, we don't know. I kind of wonder, like, we, there is a reference at the beginning of the episode. And we're not meant to know. And this is, again, yeah. this is me just like, I, I, the reason I'm nitpicking is I feel like it's something that the books and the show often does address mm-hmm. is this kind of nitpicky detail. I mean, I will say but, this. It, I mean, there are references on the Earth section on this, which is that you can argue they're basically a wartime economy at this point. They, yeah. I mean, they're clearly trying to build uh, ships. They're going to have, I think, three battle cruisers, you know, done at the end of the year. At one point, one of Avasarala's staff says that. So I'm assuming, you know, in the pre-asteroid Earth, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of people didn't work. They had universal basic income, but they didn't really do much else. I'm betting that's come to an end and that actually (laughs) uh, people are probably working now, probably in arms factories or in ship factories, shipyards or what have you. Or they are refugees. And I think that that is a valid question to ask is whether or not people are actually being fed. Because Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> Eager nodding of head, right? Yeah, right? Yeah. And also, I think it would impact the relationship between Earth and Mars. Mm-hmm. Well, this is... Because Mars lost relatively few people right. and is relatively wealthy at this point. So. Yeah, this is a another thing. And, like, it, it briefly gets addressed, like, during the sort of press scrum as Avasaral is walking. Someone, I think, references, you know... Why has there been no investigation of the MCRN in terms of its role here? Mm-hmm. I think there was like a brief throwaway line there. But again, that was frustrating because it's a valid question to ask. And so <laughs> I would kind of like to know the answer to that. If you had a whole like half a fleet, you know, uh, mutiny, yeah. why are we supposed to trust this half of the fleet? That would be my question. 
right? I guess. I mean, like, you could literally say, I mean, it might be, this is an insane, so, so the Earth. Pa- not just trust them as if they're, tr- not just because, like, are they loyal, but, like, look what happened on your watch, asshole. Like. <laughs> That's fair. The, the, the Earth parallel I would give is in, weirdly Ukraine. Um, so, in other words, like, think about, think about it this way. Ukraine has been a divided country ever since, you know, the breakup of the Soviet Union. There was a Western part of the country that was, you know, Europe facing. There was an Eastern part of the country that is more Russia facing. When the war broke out in 2014 and the Russians annexed Crimea and then started meddling around in in the Donbass region, one of the weird effects of that is that the remainder of Ukraine became that much more pro-Western because you know, they didn't govern every, every, anything else. So therefore, the sort of median voter in Ukraine suddenly shifted even further more towards, you know, the West face, uh, facing the West. Now, what's happening in the expanse is slightly different, but you can argue that if this Martian faction that is like super militant has left Mars and has taken, you know, all the surplus ships and gone away, then I can sort of see why the remainder of, of Mars would look at Earth in a slightly different way. Yeah. Listeners, Anna is giving me the side eye like you would not believe right now. I have other historical, you know, examples in mind that perhaps don't say that, but you you have the more impressive and recent <laughs> one, so I'm just going to say sure, you can also pronounce probably the names of the people leading the Ukraine and I and know what they are. So I'm just going to defer to the smarty pants on this one. <laughs> uh, I was what you are correct that obviously between enduring rivals there would be a there is a scenario where you you would think Mars would try to exploit Earth's vulnerability and join in. So like again, this is this all goes back to the point of I would like to like if even if it was an exposition Let's scene. See, like, what's going on what's on going Mars? On Mars? That's what the, both of us, I think we both the, the, need both to know that. Have this question. Yeah, that's a valid point. Yeah. Yes, because because we talked about this extensively in our in our other you know episodes about previous seasons, which is that the Mars Mars is a fascinating yeah. invention. Yes. Of the authors, it's here. been one they, of the best they, things about the show. There's no denying that. Yeah, yeah. because it's it's a little bit of a stand-in for America, mm-hmm. right? Like it's the it's the it's the frontier. It's frontier culture, yeah. and you know that's we. I like to get you know insight from people who've thought this through, uh, and now they just seem interested in other things. Yeah. So. Speaking of interested in other things, Dan, we're going to talk themes and quotes. Yes. So for those of you who have listened to us for a long time, we haven't talked about, we haven't had this section for some time, but we did always do this with The Expanse. So we're bringing it back. So the quote I have uh, is from my favorite character always is Christian Avasarala, but it's actually an unusual quote from her. Come. You wanted to see me, ma'am? I never thought I'd actually enjoy this sensation. Maybe it's the lack of sensation. So, Anna, in some ways, when Avasarala talks about the lack of sensation, she is just echoing what every single character in this episode either does or says. Whether we're talking about drummer or Naomi or Amos, they all say some variation of we have lost so much already and they just seem bone tired. And we look at Philip and he like he, he seems almost incapable of feeling anything. As I said, Marco is the only winner in this entire episode and he seems bored. And there is no denying that war and catastrophe have a numbing effect. 
And I, I would say this, I've referenced this before, but this episode, more than any single episode last season, really felt like it was infected from the actual pandemic that the world has been experiencing while they were filming this. I like that point so much, I'm just going to kind of ditto you <laughs> on that. It also makes me reconsider my feelings about the episode because in the context of the pandemic, in the context of where the characters might realistically be, some of the things that I'm nitpicking about make sense. Yeah. You know, the kind of lack of affect. Mm-hmm. Um, the tiredness, the, every, the everything feels tired. Right. Not just the crew of the Rossi, but everything. Everything feels uh, like played out. And I think the way I would put it this way, Anna, is that that makes sense for an episode. If that's this entire season, then we are in trouble. This works for, well, for a single episode. Of Valserola, we, we, we get a strong indication at the end of the episode that something good is going to happen, or at least there's a plan for something good to happen. So, right. yeah. You know, like we're, we're and, and you know, I mean, it is an interesting place to start a season. I have to now. Now I'm going to just say that's a bold choice, Cotton. Like <laughs> to start your season not with a bang but with a whimper. An Aubrey show would do that. So here's the way I put it. And again, this goes back to this goes back to Game of Thrones. What this reminds me of, it's the doppelganger. Of the very end, I want to say, of season six of Game of Thrones. Do you remember at the very end of season six of Game of Thrones, Daenerys is sailing to Westeros with, like, literally every ally, you know, at their at her disposal. The dragons are flying. And, like, any normal assessment of that would be, oh, my God, Cersei's about to get her ass kicked. You know, like, you're, you're thinking that's going to happen. And, of course, the interesting question is the show then tries to figure out ways in which that subverts that expectation. I think in some ways this is the inverse of that, which is this hopefully will be the bleakest episode of this season because it's an episode, as I said before, and to repeat a theme, Marco is winning and everyone else is losing. And while Marco is an interesting character, that's a bad vibe for a show. And again, as you say, like the exhaustion is real and I would say earned given what's been happening. But the problem is, is that as, as television... You can watch an episode of that. You can't watch a season of that. It's just not going to be yeah. bearable. Well, I am actually optimistic that, that things will change. On there that. we go. No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Adana, the, the asteroid just oh, no. up. Oh, oh my God. God. We've destroyed so many of them, Anna. I don't understand. Why don't people appreciate all the ones we are We're in a debris field. <laughs> this is a section of the show where we say things we didn't get to say earlier. <laughs> Dan, what do you got? I only have two things because I think we've addressed almost everything else. Uh, first, Nadine Nicole, welcome to the opening credits. Nadine Nicole plays Clarissa Mao. I believe this was the first time uh, I saw her in the opening credits. It seems she's going to be a regular for this uh, season, which seems appropriate. She's obviously taking Alex's place in terms of being a member of the Rossi crew, although she's... She joins the crew in the books as well, oh, okay. but perhaps she'll have a bigger role. Yeah. The only other thing is the only other time I laughed watching this episode was the very brief sort of newsreel footage in the beginning, which, which again, is an exposition dump, and it's done relatively effectively. I mean, you have to do it. But there is one headline, which is, Rocinante joins attack. And you see that launching from Luna to go off against the belt. First of all, what attack? It's the only ship that's out there. Every other ship is protecting, you know, Luna and Earth and Mars. And it's a tough little ship, man, but come on. I mean, like, you know... 
Yeah, I mean, in the context of the show, they're famous. Yeah, and it's a and it's a propaganda thing, and I get that, but like you know, it is. It it was funny to me. It is. It is just the Rossinate. It's not like it's it's not a fleet. It's like look, we gotta, we gotta, we got one ship fighting. It's like the, it, it is like the Doolittle raid in World War II. That's how bad it is. That's the way I would analogize it. <laughs> I just have a couple things myself. Yeah. Um, I was disappointed that, this is how downbeat an episode mm-hmm. it was, Dan, is that when Amos mentioned Chrissy, yeah. there was no sense of the crush she has on her. You know, the mutual crush that we have discussed. Yes. Which and we, that could have, yeah. No, it's nice. even worse than it that because like, it, when the one time Amos says Chrissy, he actually talks about can we get like, you know, paid to kill people you know and, yeah. and it was like yeah it's, it's not even a, it's not a very affectionate right, mention exactly. <laughs> yes. and i i just go back and forth about marco keon alexander because his vibe is really you know deranged dictator mm-hmm. in over his head and his he's adopted a uniform <laughs> which that is actually maybe the thing that i admit that uniform made me laugh because <laughs> <laughs> he does also wear flight gear like we, I think we talked about this. We in, talked about in, this in last, last season, season I where, yeah, yeah, where he wears flight gear but doesn't need to. Like he's like just like he's just like wearing like the whole harness stuff, even though he clearly is just like walking around the station. No one else is wearing it. Wait, wait, Anna, I've got a theory, which of course, Keon Alexander, I'm sure has no need for this. What if it was a suspenser suit? <laughs> That's what's going on. Anna. There you go. It did make me, and there is a, a strong possibility that Marco has paid a lot of attention to what the Free Navy uniform should look yeah. like. I don't think they're great. Uh, but isn't that a totally Marco, like that's entirely Mark character consistent with Marco, I guess is what I would say. That is true. He would. He is the kind of deranged dictator that would want to design everything. <laughs> It is true. I'm sorry. I'm now flashing um, back to our previous podcast. Marco, Marco would also, had he directed Event Horizon, care very much about the porn scene. Yeah. <laughs> now, he would have done the same thing where he would have devoted all of his time when to shooting he, and this is like This is a great Marco, Marco character analysis, too. When he decides to pay attention to detail, yeah. he really goes exactly, for it. Yes. Like the, he, he, like the, the uniform. Yeah. Gets a lot of attention. Feeding people, not as yeah. much. And you know, I mean, yeah, comes you know, the, uh, six of half one, dozen of the other, yes. uh, half dozen uniforms, right? Of the other. I, I am curious to see if we get any um, costume changes out of Marco. <laughs> I, one can only hope. I think my feelings about this episode have changed a little bit during our discussion. I think I've gotten a little more sympathetic to it. In part, Dan, because I'm I'm excited for the next oh, five episodes. I can't believe there's only five. Dan, there's only five episodes. That's true. Only five episodes left. But as you said, there might be the promise of of future series. I mean, I you know, not, never say never when it comes to the expanse. I think is is a safe assumption. That is true. That is true. And perhaps we shall even talk about the expanse um, on this podcast in the form of a book discussion. Yes. So, listeners, we have plans for what we're going to do in 2022. Now, obviously, we have five more expanse episodes we're going to go through. And I think we're going to do at least one overall wrap up episode after that. But then we we have some interesting ideas for how we're going to to do 2022. And I b- our season two. Exactly. Dan. Yes. And so there we're we're looking forward to this. And of course, 
we will obviously welcome any suggestions from our listeners. Yeah. Until we figure that out, Dan. Keep this channel open for more. <laughs>